0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Muscoota, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, mercy's door. We've been, uh, we're coming up to the end here of First uh, John. We're going to do Second John and Third John. Uh, this is going to be my last sermon in the letter of First John, because next week we are going to invite Chaplain Howard up to wrap up the letter of First John for us. I know that's going to be incredible. Then I'm going to do Second John and Third John, and then as we roll into the fall, we're going to do the book of Hosea, which I'm also really excited about. So just kind of give you a sense of where we're going, but this is my last college try in the letter of 1 John, and this book has been really precious to me, and I'm just really thankful to the Lord that he's got me in this passage this morning, because John recaps a whole bunch of stuff that he's been saying, and I get to just hold out to you these things that have been most beautiful to me, that I think are most beautiful uh, to John, and so I want to I do it carefully and slowly uh, this morning, although I am going to try to be aware that we've all got our kiddos in our laps also, and so maybe not too slowly, if I can help it. As we get started in 1 John chapter 5 uh, verse 1, let me read it over you that you might have the words in your heart as I preach them line by line. I'll read it first. You could stand with me as I do, just out of reverence for the Word of God. 1 John chapter 5 verse 1, it reads like this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, church, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You may be seated. As a quick recap, we said from the beginning of this sermon series through the first letter of John that his purpose in writing it was assurance. That he was writing this letter to his very own friends, to a network of house churches in the city of Ephesus that he was personally shepherding over which he was an elder. He knows these people, he loves these people, and he wants them to know something. And the thing he wants them to know above all else is that they have eternal life. He says this is his purpose in writing that you may know that you have eternal life. And the primary mechanism that he holds out throughout this letter by which you would know that you have eternal life is that you would lean on the belief that you have in the Son, Jesus Christ, and the love that you have for all those who are his children, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he just spirals around it for chapters and chapters. Believe in Jesus and love your brother. Believe in Jesus and love your brother. And then intermixed in there, he throws in this language about obeying the commandments, about holy and upright living, because he says that if you love God, and if you believe the gospel, and if you believe in the name of the Son of, of, of God, Jesus Christ, and if you love the brothers, the natural outflowing of that is that you would live an upright life like he did, that you would walk in the manner of Jesus. And yet, because this is a letter of assurance, John, knowing that this would cause anxiety in the church he's constantly coming behind his his requirements that we live these holy lives with the assurance that Jesus did what we could not and that even when we do sin that we turn back to him and so this gets us to the last chapter of his letter where he kind of packs all of that into this these two paragraphs only he kind of adds on it and I think I've been saying it as I've been preaching this letter that this is kind of how John builds an encouragement he dances around what he's saying almost in a spiral fashion where he touches on it, leaves it, and comes back to it, adding to it each time that he comes back to what he has to say. So in my passage this morning, we're going to hear him repeat himself a good bit like he's kind of been doing throughout this letter, but he's going to add some crucial elements that I'm going to try to hold out for you this morning. So uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to start here. John repeats himself that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And if you weren't here two weeks ago when I preached on the last time that John had to talk about this, I would encourage you to go to click on current sermon series, go back two weeks and listen to my message on what John has to say about this. But he wants to reemphasize again for us this morning that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He said it this way, Latin in, in chapter 4, he said that all who confess Jesus Christ in the flesh are of God, right? So in that sermon, I kind of talked to you guys about the idea that if this is the, the, the measuring stick, and it is for who your brother is in Christ, then there are probably way more people who are your brother than you would like to admit if the measure is, do they confess Jesus in the flesh, do they confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And yet your brother can be in error in any number of other things, and yet the Scripture has a whole bunch to say to us about how we engage with our brothers when they are in error. And so I held out to you guys that if all who confess Christ are your brother, that when they err, that we wrestle with them in love and in brotherhood for them and for unity in the family of Christ. though all those who confess Christ are in that category. And I said that likewise, just as there are many people who are your brother, who maybe in your mind you don't regard as your brother, that there are those who you would like to believe are your brother, that if this is the measuring stick, in fact, they are not. And these are your mission field, not your brother. And you are to love them and pursue them unto them becoming your brother. But today they are not, if this is the measuring stick. And this would be all who do not confess Jesus is the Christ. Now, very specifically, and we're going to get into it, uh, and and again, it would be better for you to go back two weeks. We talked about what it means to confess Jesus as the Christ, Jesus in the flesh, God incarnate, right? I'm I'm going to touch on that in today's message, but it's important for us to know who our brothers are, okay? And John's building on that. He says, all who believe that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Then he says, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And I want you guys to do it with me because what I like to do with John is when he just rephrases things, I just substitute his sentences for one another. So he's just said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Then he said, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. Well, who has been born of God? everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So if we replace the sentence, it says, everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And so here John is doubling down on what we preached two weeks ago, that you are commanded to love your brother, to love all who confess that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, when we read that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, I want you guys to make sure that you're seeing the congruity between what John is writing here and what John wrote in his gospel. You guys will remember if you were with us through the gospel account of John that he opens his gospel account in chapter 1 with a declaration about who Jesus gave the right to become a son of God, a child of God. He said that the true light, the light that gives light to all, was coming into the world, that he was in the world And that the world was made through him, but that the world does not know him. It did not know him. That he came to his own, and that his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in the name, in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were not born of the will of the blood or of the will of man, but who were born of God. So there's this category of people that John introduces us to in his gospel. Really, Jesus introduces us to these people, and who John's talking about in his letter. These people who have been born again. These people who have been given the right by Jesus to become children of God. See, when you when you become a child of God, Mercy's door. You are not just uh, called a child of God, where you just get a new name, but you are actually born again, born of the Spirit, where the old nature is put to death and a new nature is born within you. So that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. We've been talking about this. That the indwelling Spirit of God takes reign in your very person, in your body such that when you die and this body goes into the ground, you continue in eternity in this new life that you have been given in the presence of God. This is the promise of eternal life. It is not achieved apart from being born again. But if being born again, John says, means that you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then that means that the love that you have for the brothers, this is, think about how he's building his argument here, that everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. What he is saying is that you can't love the Father without loving your brother because the Father is in your brother. That ultimately what you love about the church, what we love about one another, is not the dead and dying flesh of our brother, but God in him. And I can testify to this in my life, and I wonder if you can as well that when I'm writing my sermons, when I'm sitting across from you in marriage counseling, or when I'm just having you over for a barbecue, that there's a distinct love that I have for the church where I look into your life, and what I love is my God in you. And what I love is the way that my God loves me through you. And one of the reasons why I encourage you guys so uh, passionately to really get involved in, in gospel community, and I say take the risk of really knowing people and really being known by people, is because I actually believe when I'm in your presence, because the spirit of the living God lives in you, that in any given moment, your voice can be the voice of my God into my life. That you, in knowing me, can speak by the spirit of God into my life, encouragement, love, rebuke, correction, and all the rest, but I don't really care at all what you have to say if you are not alive. If you are still dead in your sin, like I was once dead in my sin, then I know what I know about myself is true of you, that you have nothing of real value and substance to offer me that is of any eternal consequence, but all who have the Spirit of God have eternal life, and I'm very interested in the words of those who have eternal life because you are indwelled by the very Spirit that gave you that internal life. And so John continues to build this case. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father will love everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So church, quick point, because I'm not going to preach it a bunch, because I just preached it a couple weeks ago, but go and love your brother as you love the Father, and your brother is everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I don't mean it as a difficult word at all, but I also want you guys to hear that if if in fact your brother is in error, when you get together with your brother and your brother starts saying things that are just not true according to the scriptures or when he's believing a lie or whatever, that loving your brother would necessarily mean that you care about that too and that you be willing to let the Spirit of God in you speak into his life. And so it takes some courage. And one of the difficulties that I think that I've seen in the modern church is that we tend to divide the ministry into professional ministry and the laity, the layman, essentially. And that somehow the person who is studied is the one who is really qualified to speak on behalf of God into the brother's life. When in reality, this is something that we see all throughout the first century was the ministry of the entire church that we fought for one another. See, ultimately, if there is a divide between you and I, then who's going to be there for me when I err? If there's no one at this church who is like, you know what, he's the pastor who can speak to me, then where is my security? Where is my safety? Is it, is it just me and my Bible, whereas you get a whole community and your Bible? Or do we all trust the community that God will use, that he's put us in in order to minister to one another. I really mean this as an encouragement in your life. Some of us are waiting until we get, are getting everything right before we will speak to what we know. I don't know everything, so I just stick with what I know. And you don't know everything, but you can stick to what you know. You understand what I'm saying? And I want to encourage you to walk in this in love with your brothers. And then he moves on from this, and he says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. And so he tells us that everyone who loves the Father will love whoever's been born of him. And well, how do I know that I am loving the ones who have been born of him? Well, when we love God. Well, how do I know that I'm loving God? Well, when I obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, John says, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You remember in First uh, John 3.23, I think I wrote it down. John wrote back in chapter 3, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he, Jesus, commanded us. And so he gives us this charge. If you love the father, you're going to love the brothers. How do I know that I'm loving the brothers? By loving the father. How do I know that I'm loving the father? By obeying his commands. Those commands are not burdensome. Well, what is the command? Go back to chapter 3. This is the commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he, Jesus, commanded us. Like, have you ever had it said to you that you are that the Father commands you to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about it that way? Do you ever think like that? Like, you ever think about your faith? as something where you just kinda of put the pros and cons down on a list somewhere, sat down at your kitchen table, considered all the faiths of the world, and were like, I think I'll be Christian? Is that how you think this thing happened? Or did God the Father command you to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ? The Father commanding you to believe is really good news because our Father gets what he wants And when he speaks to you and says, believe, you know what happens? You believe. You believe, church. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, and we're going to get there. But I want you to hear this, that your Father in heaven commanded you to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. And that is why you believe. And so when you get this call to obey the command, and the command is that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus, Jesus Christ, and then we can't make ourselves do that, we say, well, where do we look to obey even this simple command to believe? And the answer is we look to the command giver, God himself. And then he says, and likewise, to love one another just as he, Jesus, commanded us. Well, where did he do that? He did that in in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Jesus gives this command, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And this would minimally mean uh, well, I guess it would mean a whole lot of things, it would be tough to fit it into one sermon. But when you love your brothers in a way that mirrors the love of Jesus for you, it testifies something to the unbelieving world about who you are. It says that you are a child of God, that you are a disciple of God, when you love the other children of God with the type of love that Jesus loved for you. And you might say to me, well, Adam, what, in what way did Jesus love me? Well, I don't know, church. In what, day, in what way did Jesus love you? This is something that we do at my kitchen table on occasion, where we'll just kind of ask an open-ended question to the kids. i will be like, hey, in what way have you received this from God, or have you seen this attribute of God? And just let them answer. Let them start to really think about it. I'm asking you to stop and really think about how has Jesus loved you? Because we've been preaching that you can't give away what you're not actively receiving. You're not, not going to love your brother with some hypothetical or theoretical love that, you, that like somebody told you, hey, Jesus loved you this way. You're going to share the love that you are experiencing, that you are tasting and seeing for yourself, that you are encountering. Do you know what it's like to savor in the love of Christ for you? See, the love for the brothers would be a sacrificial love. It would be a love that lays self down. It would be a love that seeks the lost, that binds up the wounds of the brokenhearted. It would be a love that lays down all preference, that lays down reputation, that lays down all of it, everything that you think that you are worth, everything that you think that you deserve. Jesus Christ is worth far more, and he deserved far more, and he laid it all the way down, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross for you. So when he says, love the brothers the way that I loved you, that's not a small charge, and it's also not something that you can do without him in you. And so there's this building case for what we're going to need if we're going to do any of this, and yet he says his commandments are not burdensome. That feels like a burden. I mean, I've just described to you the love of Jesus, and then said that there's a command by Jesus for you to go love like that, And then John's like, and that's not a burden. Why? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I want to talk to you guys about our faith here, John makes an argument that our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Somehow, in this argument, what John is doing is he's pitting obedience to the command of Christ to love, or the command of God to believe in the name of the Son of God and to love the brothers the way that Jesus loved you. He's pit that commandment and obedience to it against the world. He has said, what, what's working against you there is the world. And I think that makes sense. You guys are like, yeah, when you say it's not a burden, that's a burden. Yeah, it's a burden if you're trying to do it from the strength of the world. It's a burden if you are trying to do that from the power of the flesh. You can't do it. But he says it's not burdensome because the victory that has overcome the world is our faith. Well, let's read what Paul had to write about our faith. I take this from Romans chapter 3. to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In reading this to you, what I'm wanting as a precious doctrine to me and to the whole church at large for you to rest in this morning is that the difference between the mission field and your brother is that the law of God is external to the mission field and the commands of God are internal to your brothers. What I mean by that is that the commands of God for you have been written on your heart. It is part of your new nature as you walk by the power of the Spirit. But the commands of God before that served only to condemn you. They served only to hold a mirror to you to show you that you cannot, by acts of obedience in your flesh, earn righteousness with God. It can't be done. And if you can't do that, then you certainly can't, by works of the law, then go and love the children of God with any kind of love that matters, any kind of eternal life type of love. And so if, if the law, which once and for all condemned you to, to death because it shined that mirror on you that said you do not meet the standard of God's holiness, cannot be the measure with which you go and love others, what is? Not works of the law done in the flesh, but instead these commandments of Christ that are now part of you. The commands of Christ are now internal to you, not external to you, and this is a free gift of grace that no one may boast To that end, I want to read to you guys from Ephesians chapter 2, where we read that you, church, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Remember, contrast it with what we're reading this morning, that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, church, through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so the doctrine that's held out to us in first john here is this one that the victory by which we overcome the world, by which we can walk in the commandment to believe in the name of the Son of God and to love our brothers with the love that he loved us with is found in this, that we have overcome the world by the free gift of faith. You obey by faith. Obey by faith. It feels like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It feels like I can either obey or I can have faith. A lot of us have been taught that way. But what faith does as a free gift is it produces obedience to the one who gifted that faith, so that even your obedience is you walking out the good works which you were made for that God predestined beforehand for you. You will obey because you are made new and because the power of God is at work in you. And what you didn't hear me say is that you will always obey, and even in there, where you fail and where you turn back to the old nature and where you sin, we have this assurance that we turn to the one who lived the perfect life for us, died for us, and rose again for us for our confidence before God. Now there's an idea that we're moving into now, my favorite part of this um, case by John, where we're going to talk about Jesus coming by the water and by the blood. And before I do, I want to hold out to you this idea of what it means to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And once again, I will plug going back two weeks and listening to the sermon on the incarnation of the Messiah. But what I want you guys to understand when we are told that all those who believe in his name are given the right to become children of God, that that phrase, believing in the name of Jesus, means something specific. What it means is that you can't just take the name of Jesus and plug it onto some God that you made up or some guy that you made up, but that it's about believing in the actual Jesus Christ, the actual Jesus of Nazareth, the historical, biblical, spirit-testified, apostle-certified Jesus Christ. I am Adam Vega, and I was born and raised in the Western Berkshire foothills of Colonial New England in Massachusetts. And I was born to uh, Daryl, Vega, and Misty. I've got three siblings, Caitlin, Kristen, and Jacob. Um, I've got a wife, Sarah Vega, Sarah Rose Vega, beautiful lady right there, Uh, formerly Galakis of Greek origin. And uh, with Sarah, we've got three boys, uh, Jack, Boaz, and Augustine, who I father. And I pastor Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois, alongside Pastor Brett Barton and Dude Underwood and Mike Collins. And the flock, the local flock that I shepherd, is made up of real people with real faces like Tina Dickerson and Pat and Linda Albers and Steve Hopkins and the rest of you. You've got names. Got a name. And if anybody comes up to you, you know me. If anybody comes up to you and they say, yeah, I know Adam Vega, I like to think of him as being born in an orphanage in Korea and of no family of origin, and uh, moving to Australia and becoming a world-renowned surfer. You would say to that person, and you're free to think that, but I know Adam Vega, and Adam Vega comes from the Berkshire foothills of colonial New England in Western Massachusetts, and he comes from Daryl and Misty, all of that, right? Because when somebody actually lived, and when somebody actually has a name, we don't, like, it's not up for debate on what we'd like to think about them. I mean, you can, but you can't. But we do this with Jesus a lot, the Western culture does this with Jesus a lot, but frankly, not just the Western culture. You'll remember, go back, but you'll remember that John is, is wrestling against heresies that existed in his day. People were making claims about Jesus that just weren't true, and they weren't just not true because they didn't agree with what John was saying. They weren't true because John was there. John saw it, and he's like, that's not true. Jesus did have a body. Jesus wasn't just a manifestation. Jesus didn't become the Christ at his baptism and and the rest, right? We know these things because we were there. We were witnesses. And what I want to hold out to you is that when your brother and sister is the one who professes faith in the name of the literal, historical, biblical Jesus, the one who actually walked on this earth and bore by many signs and proofs who he was. And we believe what he said about himself, and we believe what he showed about himself, and we believe what he documented about himself. And C.H. Spurgeon said one time that, the, that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's being able to tell the difference between right and almost right. And that has been something that's been in my head as I've been writing this sermon to remember that my brothers are those who know the literal Jesus not almost Jesus, but Jesus. And so you don't get to make him up or, or attribute attributes to him that are not there or to take away attributes from him that belong to him and then say, I believe in that Jesus or I like to think of that Jesus. Your brother is the one who believes in the name of Christ, this Jesus. You understand? And John is going to now go into that Jesus in verse 6. He says, this is he And so he starts to get into water, blood, and spirit. And we could do a number of things with the water and the blood and the spirit. I'm going to try to stick within what I know about John, and then I'm going to tell you some things that I think about when I think about uh, the role of water and, and blood and the spirit in the life of Jesus. But in particular, because John wrote the gospel account of John, and we just preached it, there are some things you guys are going to remember concerning water and blood. And here's the one that really stood out to me. Do you remember when we preached about the crucifixion, if you were here for that? And I reminded you that when they wanted to ensure that Jesus was truly dead, that he hung upon a cross, and the Roman centurion took a spear and he pierced it through his side. Remember, he would have been up there, so they would have been down here. So to pierce through his side, you got to kind of go up on an angle. And then John talks to us about what happened next, and some people have found it odd that he mentions it. But it says that he spilled what? Water and blood. And I said that the, that the spectacle of water at the piercing of the heart through under the ribcage like that suggests that what happened is that they punctured the pericardium. There's this sac, this membrane that holds the heart that's filled with fluid. And so when you pierce that, you would see the pouring, this, like the gushing of water and blood. And maybe that is nothing for you, but I'll tell you, it's something for me. Because when you read history, and and we've been given a testimony of the Spirit, I'm going to get there, but we've also been given the testimony of history. And it's not hard if you do any amount of labor to agree that Jesus Christ lived. And it's really not hard because it's so well documented even if you leave the Bible that Jesus Christ was crucified. And there's even, even, maybe even, you can get to agreement that Jesus Christ appeared to continue living after the record of his crucifixion, because there's all of this testimony and evidence that he was back and doing a bunch of stuff. But then it leads to making some claims. How is that possible? And a popular heresy back then is called the swoon theory, and it arrives later, but some have said he didn't really die. He fainted on the cross, and then after he was laid in the tomb, he hulked out and rolled the stone away, and walked out, and something that helps me with that is that he spilled the water and the blood, that that detail was left in there tells me, I preached it on that Easter, that he was dead, dead, like our Jesus died all the way for us, and that's a minimum at what I know that John is talking about when he mentions again the water and the blood by which uh, the, the testimony of Jesus, of this Jesus who came, comes to us. He wants us to know that he really did live, that within him was all the stuff of a man, that Jesus Christ was fully man, that he came in a body and the body had water and blood in it, and that he really spilled that water and that blood on the cross for you. This is not insignificant because he's fighting against those who are claiming that that's not what happened. See, church, you need to know that Jesus Christ came in a body and lived as a human for you and shed human blood and human water for you. That is true and it is huge. And we read it in that passage that God gave him as offered him as a propitiation for our sin. So when that word propitiation, it means like atonement or to satisfy the wrath of God. And so, If Jesus didn't spill the blood by which the the, the guilt payment for our sin was due, then we've still got to pay it. Someone's got to pay it. Jesus Christ had to live a perfect human life and die a sinner's death and spill the atoning sacrificial blood of a lamb for you. And John says that's the testimony of this Jesus, that this Jesus came by water and blood. He came by water and blood meaning he was born of a woman, he passed through a womb and through a birth canal, he came into the world by water and blood, he went out of the world spilling water and blood, and we've got a ministry in between these two theaters of water and blood where continually we see some truths about Jesus in the way that he interacts with water and blood in ways that only God does. In the water, you can think about his baptism at which the skies break open and God audibly speaks and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove certifying who he is, the son of God, the water. When we see him say to the woman at the well, I am the fountain of living water and anyone who drinks from, from this well will never thirst again. She says, let me drink of this water always when he sends the blind man into the pool of Siloam after he anoints him with the mud and he washes and then he receives his sight. Did our God, did our God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, God of the Son, the Son of God, did he not interact with water in this life, perfectly living a life of obedience where he interacted through all of the ceremony, all of the religious observances that have to do with water, did he not up the ante a thousand times? and show us by his interaction with water who he was, and likewise by the blood. Not only in the shedding of his own blood, but did he not make the blood to flow again in men who were surely dead? Did he not speak to Lazarus, get up and walk, and suddenly his, his heart is pumping through his veins? Yet again, did he not do that? Did he not touch the leper, The blood, the the open sores of the skin that ought to have defiled him, and instead the leper is made clean. Did the woman with the issue of the blood not reach out behind him and touch just the fringe of his garment? And the issue of the blood, she says, she felt within her body that she was made well. Did Jesus not interact with the blood in a way that only God interacts with the blood. Jesus came by water and by blood, both the water and blood that flowed within his own own body and by his mastery over the water and blood of the world Did he show us who he was. And the spirit is the one who testifies it because the spirit is the truth. The same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that carried him throughout his life of ministry, the spirit that testified to his sonship in the waters of baptism, is the spirit of truth that testifies to us. And so these three agree. And he's now appealing to our common view of the law, that when somebody brings a testimony for or against something, we want to know, can we back this up with more testimonies? It is thought that when the testimony of three or more agree that something is surely true, It's so much so that when Jesus would make testimony about himself, would bear witness about himself, the Pharisees and the Jews would accuse him and say, this is a man who testifies about himself. And he would say, I am the one who testifies about himself, but even when I do this, I have the testimony of three because I speak the words of the Father and I speak it by the power of the Spirit because our God, three in one, every word that proceeds from his mouth is the agreement of three or more witnesses. Jesus says, this is who I am. And if we receive the testimony of men, then the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. So what he has to say about him is the testimony that matters most, not the testimony of men. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. So that testimony is a testimony that belongs to the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you, which means that this truth about Jesus belongs to you. It's within you. You're not dependent on man to give this testimony to you because it is the testimony of God and God has planted this testimony in you. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony God has borne concerning his son and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. I mean, come on. This is what John said his letters about. Guys, you really have eternal life, and I want you to believe it. I want you to really know it, that you have eternal life. John wants you to know it, you really have eternal life. You're going to live forever as children of the Most High king. It is the highest identity that you have. God can take anything else from you. I posted about it this morning when I woke up. Several times a week when I wake up, my first thought is to glorify in God for the things that he's done for me. Something other than the fact that he's made me a son of God. Lately this year, because it's been so amazing, I've just been saying, goodness gracious, God, you have made me a pastor. you like, I preach the gospel for a living. Are you kidding me? Like, I love a church, and I love my city for a living. Are you kidding me? And I'll just, like, Sit under that, and then I'll hear the voice of my wife who says it to me like twice a week. Don't rejoice that you can do this thing and that thing. Rejoice that your name is in the book of life. And I'll take a step back, and I'll be like, yeah, he could take anything else from me, and he, but he will never leave me or forsake me. He has called me his son. And I want you to believe it, Church that you belong to the Lord your God. He has called you His child, and you have the promise of eternal life. How can you know? Because of the testimony of Jesus Christ, the name of the Son of God, who lived for you, spilled his blood and water for you, and took up his life again by the power of the Holy Spirit, conquering your enemy, death, and ushering you into the eternal new life that he has enjoyed forevermore at the right hand of the Father. This is you. Amen? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have the Son of God? There is only one way to be made right with God. It is through a narrow doorway, an inclusive gospel that is open to all, but an exclusive gospel in that there's only one way. And that one way is the way, the truth, and the life, the Son Of God, You must place your faith in the name of the Son of God. Your Father in heaven commands it. And if that command has fallen on your ears today, if it has fallen on your heart today, then today is the day of rejoicing for you. Today is the day of repentance for you. And if you have been saved, if you have been called a son, then you have eternal life. And I want to make this plug for baptism as we get close to it. What makes you a Christian is that you have been united with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit who has given you faith. And biblically, the first thing that a new believer does is join him in the water of baptism. It's a much newer phenomenon that we would do it any differently than that. The portrait of New Testament scripture says this, I heard the gospel, I believed the gospel, I said, where's water that I might be baptized? If you belong to Him and, you're, and you don't understand where baptism fits into your story, I want you to click that link and to send me an email so that we can talk about it because you are missing, if that's you, if you're a Christian who has not yet been baptized, you are missing in a really beautiful picture of Christ's love for you and I want you to experience it, okay? But if you do not have the Son, you do not have life. There is no other way to be made right with God And if you are in here this morning believing that you are making yourself right with God by your works of righteousness, if you believe that you have met God halfway, if you believe that he has taken pity on you because you are the deserving poor, because he's excused your sin because of what happened to you, or because he's looked at you and he said, well, you're better than your dad was, or anything like this, if you have crafted a God in your head who is not perfectly holy and demands perfect holiness of you, then you are not placing your faith in the son who is the only one who can offer you righteousness with the father and today is the day for you to repent and to receive christ for your salvation and if i'm still speaking a foreign language to you i want to keep talking and so i would love for you to pull me aside to pray for you and we can do that together but church that's not the point the point that john has for you is you do have eternal life If you confess Christ in the flesh, you are a son of God. And so what I want to invite you into now is a time of responsive prayer. If you're a child in the room, can you raise your hand if you're under the age of 10 in this room? If you're under the age of 10. All of you who are raising your hand, I want you to repeat after me, okay? Jesus Christ really lived. Let me hear you. Jesus Christ really lived. Jesus Christ really died for me. And Jesus Christ really rose. And I believe in him. Okay? Thank you so much for your attention this morning, little ones. And I pray that this is an encouragement for you, too. He loves you. Ask your mom and dad more about what we've said this morning. Let's pray.